Thanks so much, Heather. Would you grab your Bibles as we are in the next several weeks going to be in the book of, really it's the book of Psalm, but uh, we're going to be looking at some Psalms. And today, as we get started, uh, I want to talk to you about something that is so very needed in our churches today, something that is desperately needed, but not just needed in our churches, but needed in our homes, not just needed in our homes, but needed in our community needed in our workplace, and I I mean it is a desperate need. And so as we kick off this new series, Lyrics for Life, I look forward to us spending these next several Sunday mornings together anchored in one of the great Psalms in the Bible. But just to let you know, kind of give you a heads up, I'm going to take you into some of those obscure Psalms. And today we head off to Psalm 101. It's not the most prominent psalm. It's not the most public, uh, at least public awareness uh, is not at the height when you come to Psalm 101, but today that is where God is leading me. And so I share that psalm with you today as we think about these missing links. Because man, we're just, I mean, think about where we are as a nation. It's hard for us and please don't send me emails about this. Whatever political party you're affiliated with or whether you're a a non-political party person altogether, uh, I think we all could agree on one thing. We need better leadership in our nation, period. And the really great people so often, we've created such a caustic environment, people just will not serve. They will not run the scrutiny, what it puts their family through. But man, what I've been praying, especially for our nation, is that God would raise up some great internal leadership. And that's where our church is right now. We're rebuilding. You know, there's only one Eddie Gibson or Don Gene Smith. I could go around over the last three or four years when you talk about great men and women of the faith. And I watched them laid out there in that casting. And I often wonder who's coming along behind. And I'm so thankful today to say, hey, there's some people like the Brian Steeles of the world. I'm so thankful that we could take our hands and say, hey, here's a great young man. Here's a great young lady. Boy, here's a great new young deacon, etc." The challenge for us is there's not many of those. But let me tell you something, there's not many in any church because there's such a great void and vacuum when it comes to building leaders. Now the church is like so many others, including corporate America, we kind of have this fancy way of saying, well, there's programs you can put through, people through. If I have time, I'll mention a young leaders group of pastors that I was in way back in 1993 and 94. But I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, what we're missing is a great Bible foundation for some of the very simplest concepts in leadership. As I look out across this group and down the barrel of that camera today at the center and those that are viewing from home, I'm aware of so many marriages that need men to be in a much greater, deeper place spiritually than they are right now. There's a void and vacuum in our marriages 
for men to step up and be the spiritual leaders that we're called to be. There's a spiritual vacuum for women in our culture to be the godly women that they need to be, the examples that they need to be. And so today I want to take you to the heartbeat of the 101 Psalm. It's an incredible psalm because we know there's a need and whether you're a leader in home or a classroom or in your family, if you're serving on a committee or heading up to vacation Bible school here in a few weeks, whether it's in our church, how do we know what leadership looks like, the kind of leadership that God really blesses? And all of us want that assurance today. We want more than anything for God's hand of blessing to be on our lives as we lead. Let's read in our Bible, Psalm 101. I'm going to begin reading in verse number one and read down through verse number eight. Unless you and I have different texts, that would be the entire Psalm. Let's read it together. I will sing of your love and justice. To you, Lord, I will sing praise. I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? I will conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart. Look in verse three. I will not look with approval on anything that's vile. I hate what faithless people do. I have no part in it. The perverse of heart shall be far from me, and I will have nothing to do with what is evil. Whoever slanders their neighbor in secret, I will put to silence. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, I will not tolerate. My eyes will be on the faithful in the land, and they will dwell with me. The one who walk, the whose walk is blameless, will minister to me. No one who practices deceit will dwell in the house, in my house. No one who speaks falsely will stand in my presence. Every morning, verse number eight, I will put to silence all the wicked in the land. I will cut off every evildoer from the city of the Lord. Now, it's interesting that we're looking today at Psalm 101. Interesting in that its neighbor on the left side of your page, or on the previous page, which, however it falls in your text, Psalm 100 is a very prominent psalm. It is one of those great popular psalms that really is a song or, 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 or a psalm of praise. God's people are really exalting him. And it really has a great crescendo, a great fervor and pitch to it. It really is a psalm of praise. But when you come to Psalm 101, and I want you to write this down, it's not a psalm of praise, it's a psalm of practice. It's a psalm of practice. David has just been initiated and engaged and installed as the king of Israel. And what David is gonna record for us are some words of, of, that are heartfelt, heartfelt words of what he wants his new ordained leadership to look like. David's gonna convey to us what he wants his administration to look like. He's gonna convey to us what he wants his home to look like, his house. And in doing so, he's gonna provide for us, now you listen to me today. 
hear my, hear my heart. He's going to provide for us three incredibly important missing links when it comes to the foundation of leadership. And I want you to get all three jotted down somewhere, whether you've got lipstick, pencil, pen, whatever it is, mascara work if you have nothing else. But I want you to jot these three missing links down with me. I want you to see them today out of the text. And just as important, I want you to hear your pastor's heart when it comes to developing leaders. Number one, I want you to see what David mentions here. He says, the leadership that God blesses are those leaders that live a blameless life. A blameless life. Look back in verse number one. I will sing of your love and justice to you, Lord. I will sing praise. And then look in verse two. I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? Question. I will conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart. I stop for just a moment, on the brakes, to put one of those myths to bed, I hope, completely. I think we tried to do this when we went through the book of Job. It reminds me of the beginning of the book of Job, where the Bible tells us that Job was a blameless man. He was an upright man. And when we read this, immediately we begin to make the assumption, well, blameless is a pretty good person. Blameless must be sinless. And I want you to quickly put that to rest. This is not suggesting a sinless life. The word blameless there is important to us. By the way, the King James uses these two words to describe the word blameless, the perfect way. Um, it, it's, it's a picture, really. It's careful way. It's, it's, it's really, you might want to just jot down somewhere in some white space, these three English words. It really is talking about being whole morally. Being whole morally. In fact, I put this on your little outline for you to remember. It's, it's the concept that David begins to bring to us that sound living produces sound leaders. By living in a sound, moral way, it can produce some really sound leaders. Let me explain this concept to you. David Miller's down here on the front. David begged me today, he said, Pastor, can I be a sermon illustration? Pastor, is there any way that you could mention me in the sermon today? And I said, well, David, not, you're going to go up there in the balcony and play around with the computer or the sound today. And how can I mention you? He said, I'll tell you what, I'll get Martin to run the sound today, and I'll come sit on the second row. So, David, this is your time, man. Are you ready? Do you want to go ahead and tell him now the pastor shouldn't tell fibs from the pulpit? Really, he didn't tell me that, but we'll just use him since he's close and he's vulnerable. Look at him. Let's just say after church today that my wife, Becky, came running up to me and she said, Honey, I just heard the worst possible thing that you can imagine about David Miller. And I would probably say, Really? what did he do? And if she went on to tell me, well, he did such and such. 
And if I looked at her once upon that news hit my ears and I made this response, there's no way in the world I believe that because I know David Miller. I know who he is. I know what he stands for. I know he's not perfect. His wife lets us know that all the time. (laughs) But one thing I know about David Miller, Becky, what you just shared with me is not true. That's the concept of the blameless terminology here. It's that you live a life in such high regard when something is even off the cuff shared, people know even upon hearing that bogus news that that cannot be true. Now, one thing I want to convey very clearly to you today, your private life will ultimately affect your public life. Let me tell you something. We live in a culture right now that tries to tell us something different. I won't get into the names, but here recently we had some major scandals in the state of Texas. Some people took great exception with some of our leaders that did certain things in their private life. And maybe when they did those and engaged, one of them recently said it was a terrible mistake, I shouldn't have done that after the fact. Let me tell you something. The the day and time that you can do what you want as culture suggests in your private life and it'll have no impact on your public life, we know what that is. That's a bunch of baloney, that statement. Sooner or later, what you are in your private life will surface and become very evident and a part of your public life. Even though society tries to teach us that when we're alone in our own home, no one can tell us what to do. We'll do as we please, and it's no one else's business. That's not what God's word teaches us. God's word teaches us that your private life counts. Now, I ask you with your thinking caps on, You tell me what David says here in terms of leadership and his administration, where leadership begins in verse number two. Look at those two little statements right there. Where does he say, look at the end of verse two. I will conduct my affairs in the palace in front of all the people. That's not what verse 2b says. David says, I will conduct my affairs in my house, in my home. I will conduct them in a blameless way. What we do in our private lives is crucial. I mentioned to you a number of years ago, we had only one Baptist convention in the state of Texas at that time. And uh, they, they called on a number of new and young pastors to come together. They just called it the Young Leaders Group. Dick Maples was the guy that was heading that up at that time. And there, there were new pastors and young pastors from all over the state of Texas that would come together. And, and one of the things they challenged us is, you know, pastors, how are you doing in your private life? 
from an accountability standpoint. During one of those sessions, one of the great counselors that they had brought in to talk to a room full of pastors asked us a question. It was a question that shook my whole foundation at that moment. This counselor asked us one simple question, and I think he was looking like some of you accused me of doing. I think he was looking right at me, even though there were several hundred pastors in the room. He asked us this question. He simply said, how would you like to be married to you? How would you, Michael Cook, like to be married to you? And then he went on. But I just could not let that go. I thought over and over, you know, I wouldn't want to be married to me. And then I began to ask myself, well, why does she want to be married to me? And she's asking herself that same question right now, 38 years later. You see, who we are at home matters. Deacon, small group leader, member, committee member, mom, dad, you see, if we're not walking in a blameless white way in our own house, how are we going to lead in any capacity? Just asking. Do you think that's why Timothy made such a big deal when it came to church leadership? He recorded this in one of his letters to Timothy. Here's what he said in 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5. Talking about church leadership, he said, he must manage his own family well, and he's got to be able to see that his children obey. They've got to obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full honor, full respect. And then, in a parenthetical way, in the English language, it'll be in, in a parenthesis or in an enclosure of some kind. The Word of God in 1 Timothy 3, 5 says, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Question mark, parenthesis closed. Great question. I just wonder today, and we move on, how is your private life? Who are you in your home? And I speak just a moment at the center and here and those that are home today to the parents. If you're a parent today, I just want to let you know, I know you know this, but phonies don't raise young champions for God. I wonder if we're missing a big generation of people because, you know, I, I just wonder, kids tucked in the back of a suburban that hear mom and dad rip up every leader at the church and every concept of the church, you know, I, I wonder over a period of time as kids grow and mature, if they say, you know what, we heard enough of that mess growing up. And maybe that's why we have such an abandonment of the church today by the coming culture. You see, mom and dad, let me tell you something. You can fool a fool. You can con a con, but you'll never be able to kid a kid. Who we are 
in the home, in private, is so very important. But that begs the question, doesn't it? Man, that's a big statement right there, to walk in a perfect way, a blameless way, an upright, righteous way, not a sinless way necessarily, even though that's our goal, but to live a righteous, God-fearing life, how do we do that? How do we get there? And David gives us an incredible follow-up concept, a second very important element of leadership. I want you to jot it down. David goes on to say, God also blesses leaders that live a pure life. He takes it a step further. Leaders that live a pure life. Look in verse three. I will not look with approval on anything that is vile. Wow. What does the King James say there? I will look upon no wicked thing. And then he says this. I hate the faithless, what faithless people do and I will have no part in it. That's interesting, isn't it? The King James says nothing wicked. The NIV just translates that vile. It speaks of good for nothing, worthlessness, wickedness. It even goes so far there, the language, the Hebrew language, as, as kind of a destroyer of a sense. David's letting us know that a wandering eye is an unguarded eye, and an unguarded eye is a wandering eye. Over the last couple of years, I've bought two very important pieces of equipment. I bought a new blower, the first gasoline blower I've ever owned. I've always been an electric man my whole life, unrolling the cords, my whole life rolling up the cords. So I splurged and got me a gasoline high-powered blower. And I also got me for the farm a new brush cutter. And man, you got to be careful with that, dude. Both of them had a very important thing tucked inside the packaging. Both of them with the owner's manual closely squeezed in there together provided for me some new, clear, protective eye goggles. Inside the instruction manual of both of those items, it made this statement. Be sure to always wear protective eyewear. You know, I got to thinking about that. How smart is a person that would buy something like that when the manufacturer says, you're about to get hurt? Dude, when you're blowing, stuff's going to blow up in your eyes and hurt your eyes. While you're out there whacking with that, with that cutter, understand debris is going to be blowing up and slamming your face. It's letting me know ahead of time you will eventually get hurt. And that's the way I took it. Man, I try to wear my goggles or some kind of protective eyewear when I use those things. You know, the Bible has a great instruction manual. It talks so much about we need to have protective wear on as we go through life. Get ready, the Bible says. Guard your eyes. There's certain things you should not be looking upon or those things are gonna come back and they're gonna hurt you. Now, I particularly talk to the men here today. 
Men, we know that our eyes, that's one of our chief senses. Our eyes, especially the male eye, is extremely sensitive. And we've got to guard our sight. So very important that we do that. In fact, David went on to say, I will not look with approval on anything that is vile. Now, how do you do that? I share with you before, every day on my commute in right now, I see filthy billboards, the same ones every stinking day. You well, stop looking, I have. But I know they're there. Charles Spurgeon said something one time that applies here. Charles Spurgeon said, you cannot stop birds from landing on your head, but you can prevent them from building a bird nest there. And so I just suggest to you the next time that a bird lands on your head, just knock it off. Paul said this big statement in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. He said, it is God will that it's God's will that you should be sanctified. In other words, set apart or set in a different direction, in a righteous direction. And then he went on to say that you should avoid all sexual immorality. I think the King James used the word fornication. The Greek word there is forneus. We get our word pornography from that somebody plopped a magazine down on my outer table the other day. Didn't claim who plopped it down there. It could have been anyone. Didn't matter. But inside of it, and they didn't have this article marked. I just was looking through the magazine. It was one of the Christian magazines. Maybe they said, hey, pastor might want to take a look at this. But there were a number of articles, but kind of tucked away in the middle was an article that fascinated me. The headlines of that article simply said, the church's biggest secret sin. And it went on to share all kinds of new statistics, by the way, that are hard to verify about the problem of pornography in the modern day church. I've shared with you before, how do you attack that? Well, you have a pornography clinic and everybody shows up? Yeah, let's see how many sign up for that. I mean, that's a challenge. The modern church, their biggest secret sin, because we know pornography will destroy our faith. Pornography will destroy a family. It will destroy a future. Pornography numbs our moral conscience. And it will stunt our spiritual growth. And so we've got to guard our eyes. David said, when it comes to being a leader of the whole nation of Israel, I've got to guard my eyes. By the way, I remind you on one of David's, David's great downfalls, it was a look that got him. It was a look that cost him. It's been a long time since Becky and I talked about this, but something that has really just shaken our family, gosh, it's been, I don't know, 23, 24 years ago, 
We, we have a number of people, and especially in Becky's family, that are ministry-oriented. And one of our family members down in the San Antonio area, uh, about 20, almost, it's almost the 24th anniversary of this, that church and one of our relatives had something that just rocked them, rocked the whole, it just rocked us all. On his pastoral staff at this church, on a Saturday afternoon, members began to call one another. You know how Baptists spread the word. Some of the day said, Pastor, are you worried about closing church and people not knowing? I said, not a bit. Not a bit. But the members there in the San Antonio area began to call each other. They said, did you know Pastor so-and-so was arrested? He was arrested at noon today, just before the weekend services. This lead worship pastor had gone into a public restroom in San Antonio, Texas and solicited for sex a male undercover San Antonio police officer. And they cuffed him and hauled him away. And I just remember when we got the call, the heartbreak at the other end of the phone why would pastor so-and-so do that? He's married. 18 years he's been married. He has children. Why would a man do that? And it was only months later, long after all of the legal things unfolded, that through computer searches and so on, they found the root. For months, he'd been going on in secretly to these pornographic sites. And first, it began to completely corrode his marriage and expectations within the bond and sanctity of that marriage. And then that led to other kind of sites of all bestiality, all kinds of things. And I guess looking back, he was just on a search for something greater and something different. And it cost him his family. It cost him his future. And today I just come to you and as leaders, as developing leaders and emerging leaders, how important is it that we be careful? Do you think that's why Paul wrote a little later in 1 Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, he said, abstain, or NIV says, reject every kind of evil. You see, what you see impacts what you think and what you will do. I just noticed there and felt something when I said that. Reading audiences for 30 some odd years now, I read you pretty well. I see some of you don't believe that. What you see will impact what you think and what you do. Let me see if I can convince you. 
This year, a few weeks ago, we had something called the Super Bowl. And there was a lot of discussion this year in the midst of a pandemic. Last year's Super Bowl got in right after, right before the pandemic started. It, it, we, we, we covered that event. But this year, with the pandemic and the limited seating in the stadium and all those things, there was the thought that maybe Super Bowl ads will decrease for the first time in 29 years in cost. Just for your trivia. 2019, the average Super Bowl ad, 5.3 million for 30 seconds. 5.3, average ad, 30 seconds. So th this year they wondered, will it go down? 4.7, 4.4, how low will it go? This year the average ad costs $5.6 million. See, business people understand it. Madison Avenue gets it. Why don't we get it? That what we see will impact what we think and what we'll do. You don't believe it? I remind you what Jesus himself said in Matthew 28. Remember, he looked out across a group and he says, but I tell you that any one of you that look at a woman and look at her in such a way, hey, 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 you remember what he says? He's already committed adultery in a lustful way. That's fascinating because the word look that he used there was not intended to be a glance. The tense of the verb gives us the understanding. It, was a, it wasn't a glance, it was a gaze. It was meant literally to observe and to carefully and intently look upon it. It wasn't a look, it was a lust. So David gives us two very important factors in the leadership that God blesses. The leader he blesses, number one, will live a upright, a blameless life, even in private. That's the foundation. Number two, a pure life. But I want you to see the result of this. A third thing, jot it down. David went on to say that God blesses leaders that live a life worthy of imitating. As a result of this, as leadership begins to emerge, David drives home this concept that God blesses leaders that live a life worthy of imitating. Man, our Bibles would be filled with those, wouldn't they? David, even though he wasn't perfect, would be an example. Someone that we could, there's so many parts of his life we could imitate. Paul would be. Two weeks ago, I was reading in my devotional a very familiar passage to us. Philippians 3, over there in the middle of the chapter, what is it, around verse 12? The, the, the Bible says, not that I have already obtained all this, not that I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but the one thing I do, forget what's behind. Strain before what's ahead. But then if you skip down to verse 17, Philippians 3, man, this lights the fire. Paul went on to say, listen to these words, join together in following my example. Wow. 
He said, brothers and sisters, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. You see what Paul was saying? Paul was saying, you need to imitate me as I follow him. You need to follow me as I follow him. What an important piece of the puzzle. In fact, look in verse number four, Psalm 101. The perverse of heart shall be far from me. I'll not use them as my model. Those that are not upright and God-fearing people, they won't be my model, he says. Look at that second statement in verse four. I will have nothing to do with what is evil. Then he went on to say in verse five, whoever slanders his neighbors in secret, put to silence. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, I will not tolerate. You see what David says there, especially in verse four? I'll not employ people of evil character. I'll not entertain people of evil character, employ them. And he, he says, we will not approve of wickedness in our house, in our palace, in our place of worship. He just lays down the law. Wow. Verse six, my eyes will be on the faithful in the land. You see who he says his example will be? I will look to those that are faithful. The ones that I'll be imitating are those that live in faithfulness. My eyes will be on the faithful. The lifestyle, to, those that have a lifestyle to walk with God, those that demonstrate the presence of God in their lives. Folks, the world needs godly leadership in our families, in our community, in our workplace, in the church. And we've got to ask ourselves the question, where does that start? Leadership is anchored beginning and end in the word of God. Write that, fill that statement in. Godly leadership always begins with the word of God. I've shared with you that one of the things that has really made a difference in my life is my devotional time. I don't know how you're batting, but I'm batting a pretty good percentage on that. It's rare that I don't spend time. Last fall, I haven't shared this part with you, but last fall, during all that goofy isolation and pandemic, coming out of the summer, restarting the church, I felt like God was saying something, and, and, and that's why I get scolded sometimes when we go to bed at night because I keep reading. <laughs> but I felt like God was saying something to me about my devotional life. I sensed that God was asking me to do more of a bookend devotional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael Cook, I know you're spending time with me in the morning, but I want you to add something. I want you to add devotional time with me in the evening. And it was as if God was telling me, or I just sensed this, in the morning, I'll give you what you need for the day. But in the evening, I'm going to repair everything that the world has tried to tear away. And so I've trusted him. Every morning, I spend time with him. Every evening, usually it's when I crawl in bed. 
I read and I just seek what might God have for me before my final thoughts in this day. And God last fall took me of all places in my devotional study in the evening to the book of Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah is challenging. But I'd never seen it before, but as I was going through each evening reading a different little section of the book, uh, the first 20 chapters, one word kept surfacing. It was the word abandon. Over and over. At one point, Jeremiah would be whipping on the priest. Man, the priests have abandoned me. A little chapter or two later, I'd be reading along, and there it was again. The, prof- the prophets have abandoned me. Be reading a little bit f- further along, and all of a sudden, Jeremiah would be blasting the people. The people of God have abandoned him. And it began to resonate with me. That's how we're built, isn't it? When it comes to leadership, you want to know the heartfelt truth of why we're not developing more leaders in the church, in our political spectrum, more dads, more moms, more leaders in general, because we abandon the cause. And I think we abandon it for two reasons. Not on your outline, but extra, no charge. I jot them down somewhere on your card. Find you some white space. We abandon the call to leadership, number one, because of inadequacy. I was just watching you when I said a few moments ago, David's worthy of imitating. And I saw some of your looks like, yeah, the adulterer, the murderer. He killed that little baby that was born out of that infidelity. That un- I, mean, I, mean, I mean, he was responsible for that little baby's death. That sin cost that little baby his life. And you're exactly right. So many will not lead because they don't feel adequate. You know, the disciples weren't very adequate. I mean, when you look at the disciples as a whole, in fact, the other day I was reading one of the scholars that said the disciples were pretty much a disappointment and a disaster. Have you ever thought about the last week of Jesus' life? Philip is panicked in the upper room and unsure who Jesus even was. Jesus is sharing the last supper, the bread and the wine. And what does Luke say? There was a full-scale war among them about who was the greatest. They go to the garden and Jesus is completely abandoned. Peter denies him. Judas betrays him. Thomas doubts him. They get to the cross and they all desert him. Jesus said, you wait right here in Jerusalem. I'll be back. And what did they do? They went, ran off down there in Galilee and started fishing. So no one really wants to lead because so often we feel inadequate. Two days ago, there was a statement made by one of the leading doctors in the United States of America. I'll never forget it. He was talking about the danger of this pandemic continuing. And he made this statement. We may be through with the virus, but the virus 
is not through with us. And I would suggest to you, when you have those feelings of inadequacy, some of the great things accomplished for the kingdom of God were accomplished obviously by sinful people that had marred lives that were far from perfect, but they were available. God hit some big licks with crooked sticks. But a second thing to jot down, people don't lead because of inadequacy, but people also, I would just suggest to you, do not lead because of the cost. Why won't you teach? The cost is too great. Why won't you consider being a deacon? The cost is too great. Why won't you consider adoption? You are such great parents of these two and there's kids all over the country that need foster parents and and permanent parents. Why won't you consider? Because the cost is too great. Why won't you run for political office? We need men and women like you running because the cost is too great. And so today, If we get there one day in Psalm 119, the psalmist wrote these words, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Later in that same chapter, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, 116, I delight in your your decrees and I will not reject the word of God. We desperately need leaders. We need you to lead. Let's pray together. Lord, we take a few moments and just ask for your incredible wisdom and discernment and exactly what you're saying to us now today out of this psalm, this lyric for our life. Psalm 101, what is it that you would say to us today about this incredible text? What is it that you're calling us to be? What is it you're calling us to do? Because we know you'll always call us to be before you call us to do. So Father, with that understanding, as we just begin now seeking your will and what you've called us, what application you're bringing us to, I pray that your word would not be void. It will not return without fruit. And Father, as we ponder about living a blameless life, a life that's pure and a life that is worth imitating, young people are challenged in this gender-crazed age. They're wondering now because there is such a void of godly women showing and demonstrating what godly women should be. So many that are starved for a visual picture of what a godly man should be. And Father, I just pray that you would raise up the leaders that need to be trained and challenged and called and set forth for your service. We know they'll not be perfect, 
but they can be extremely effective for the kingdom. And Father, we pray that you would guard our hearts. Right now we know that Satan, we may be trying to pull away from him, but he's not done with us. He's whispering in ears at this very moment, you're inadequate. Stop thinking about doing more and being more for the kingdom. It'll pass. Lunch is just a few steps away. It's just a few minutes away. So, Father, even though we are attempting in your, with your spirit leading and guiding to repel him, he's not done with us. So, Father, as we try to turn away from all evil of every sort and every kind, we guard our eyes, we guard our hearts. Again, we're trusting your word to plant the seed of righteousness and uprightness and what's good. And these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.